Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you this morning. And if you're a guest, we're particularly grateful that you've joined us. Our lead pastor, Paul, he's actually away for the next few Sundays. And so it's my privilege to open up God's word with you each week over these next few weeks. And I'm just super delighted uh, and excited to be able to jump into God's word. But before we do, um, I actually had two announcements more that I wanted to highlight for you. Number one is this. There is an event that's coming up. Uh, not this Thursday, but next Thursday. Um, it is an invitation for you to hear about what God is doing around the world uh, with our gospel partners who uh, work with, with a mission agency that focuses on unre- unreached people groups, and particularly Muslim people groups. And so I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, that'll be next Thursday night. Would, I would love to have you join me in hearing what God is doing in that part of the world. And the second announcement I want to highlight for you real quick, uh, you might be wondering like, hey, Pastor Scott, what happened to that family meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago? Didn't we vote on some stuff? Yes, we did. And uh, um, for those of you guys who don't know this, uh, we, around this time of year, every year we vote on at least two things. One is our church family budget. And just like your own budget, um, it's not really about the money as much as it is about the vision of where we're sensing God's taking us. And then second is church leadership. So how are we doing as a church leadership? Are we walking with integrity? Are we demonstrating godly character? Are we shepherding the church family well? And and by God's grace, uh, you overwhelmingly uh, affirmed both our budget and our leadership. And I just think that's a testament to the Spirit of God working in our midst, uh, especially in such a challenging, uh, crazy time that we are coming out of Uh, for God to really unite our hearts together, to excite us toward what he has in store for us in this upcoming year. Um, That is just a testament to his grace and the work of his spirit. And also I wanted to tell you thank you. Uh, So many of you came to that meeting. And I think this is a reflection of the fact that we here at Four Oaks, we don't want to just kind of agree with the vision. We want to own the vision. We don't also be a spectator. We want to be a participant in what God is doing. And even uh, not only did, did... Many of our members come, but even some of you guys who are brand new to Four Oaks, you're like, hey, I want to find out more. I want to learn how I can get involved. And if you are wondering, if you are new to us and you're wondering how to get involved, certainly would encourage you to go out to the hub out in the lobby. We'd love to answer any questions you have there. Or uh, you can go to the hub online. There's lots of great stuff, lots of great things that are happening this summer. Uh, Women's book clubs, men's Bible studies, community groups gathering, uh, service opportunities, children's and youth activities. And then like you just saw there, uh, opportunities to hear from our gospel partners of what God is doing around the world. And so lots of great stuff that's going on this summer. And along with that, uh, we have a new summer series that we just launched into a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so Pastor Paul uh, introduced this series a couple of weeks from Galatians uh, chapter 5 and what it means to walk in the Spirit versus carry out the desires of the flesh. Uh, and as he talked about, he said, you know, the fruit of the Spirit that's listed in this passage is not just about like... Um, a characteristic you're supposed to aim towards, although certainly you can do that, but it's more an assessment opportunity for you and for me. If I am walking in the Spirit, then I should expect that the fruit of the Spirit would be being born out in my life. And if I'm not demonstrating these fruits, then that means that most likely I'm walking in the flesh and I need to turn and trust and follow after the Lord and ask for His Spirit to give us more fruit. And so uh, now over the next nine weeks, we are looking at one fruit of the Spirit at a time. And uh, so last week, Pastor Paul talked about the fruit of love, uh, that if we are walking in the Spirit, then we should expect to grow in our love for God and our love for others. And today, you guys, what's, what's the second fruit of the Spirit? 
Joy, that's right, all right. So how many of you guys long for joy in your life? I would expect all of you guys to raise your hands, all right? This is not just a Christian experience. This is a human experience because we are made in the image of God and God is a joyful God. Then we can't help but also want to experience that joy or happiness in our lives. And, and this is written about all over the place, right? Not just among believers, but unbelievers too. So songwriters write songs about it. Poets, they pen poetry about it. Even our founding fathers, they established our country and said, you have the right to life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness or joy. But as we know, because we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world, <laughs> Joy is sometimes hard to grab hold of, right? It's kind of like, like sand that's sort of sifting through your fingers, that it just feels elusive or unattainable. And so we might even be tempted to just say, ah, joy's overrated. I, I shouldn't even really pursue it anymore. Um, Blaise Pascal, he said, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy to not think about such things. And that might be you. You know, I think we have a temptation in this world to really pursue happiness in one of two ways. Either we try to pursue it in temporary pleasures that we think will satisfy us. And of course, that doesn't fulfill those deeper longings that we have. Maybe we'll get little, little tiny glimpses of happiness, but it doesn't really satisfy. Or we kind of go the opposite direction. We're like, you know what? I'm just going to put my head down. I'm just going to grin and I'm going to bear it. And I'm just going to push forward and try to do the right thing regardless of how I feel whatsoever. And if I'm honest, that second, uh, second option is the one that I have often turned to. In fact, um, in my early 20s, uh, I remember being introduced to a book by John Piper called Desiring God. I'm sure many of you have heard of that before. Uh, this first tagline, though, of this book, um, it, says, it says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I wish I could say, oh yeah, that resonates with me. But I actually got through about the first chapter and I was like, I'm confused. I don't understand this. And I put it down. <laughs> like, really? God wants me to be happy? He wants me to be joyful? I don't even know how to get that. I don't even, I don't even know where that comes from. How do I attain it? Well, thankfully, uh, there was another book that came out a little bit later in my early 30s. Um, and it's this book right here. When I don't desire God, how to fight for joy. That's more my style. Uh, joy does not come naturally to me. If you are an Enneagram 7, uh, you are totally the opposite of me. If you guys know that, that's the enthusiast. Uh, I, 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 took an exam, I took a test of the Enneagram, and it gives you the nine types. And this person wanted to be more biblical. And so they put type 7 was not just the enthusiast, but joyful. On a scale of 1 to 100, you know where my joy scale was? 1. And you're like, Scott, why in the world are you going to preach to me about joy? <laughs> well, thankfully, thankfully, uh, joy, even though it doesn't come naturally, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't aspire towards it. It doesn't mean that God didn't create me for it. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't long after it, that I shouldn't pursue after it, that I shouldn't pray for it, and by God's grace that I shouldn't experience it. No, God created you and me for joy. But if you're like me too, you've got to fight for it, right? Where are you at on that joy meter right now? You might be more down to the one than the 100. Uh, well, I want to encourage you. I want to invite you. God wants, you. God wants to invite you as well to fight for joy. 
and help us to um, really see God's invitation into this joy. And we're going to turn to a little book that you probably haven't checked out in a long time, the book of Habakkuk. That's right. Uh, This prophet, Habakkuk, uh, you might identify with some of his struggles. He felt alone, like he was the only one who was pursuing righteousness. Uh, He also didn't understand what God was up to in his life. He saw the people of Israel suffering greatly. And then he saw these evil kingdoms just kind of flourishing. And he was very confused by that. I also wondered, like, am I, am I doing anything good in my prophetic ministry? And yet, at the end of chapter 3 that we're going to look at this morning, these last three verses of the book, we see a man fighting for joy. We see a man saying, even though, even though life is hard, even though I don't understand a lot of things, I want to follow after you. I want to rejoice in the Lord. So, in honor of God's word, why don't you stand with me? Habakkuk chapter 3, these last three verses, verses 17 through 19, let's listen to God's word through the prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning, and if we're honest, we we oftentimes lack joy in our lives. And we oftentimes are just looking for temporary pleasures that don't really satisfy. Or sometimes we just kind of want to numb out and not even think about joy. But neither one of those options are the ones that you are inviting us into this morning. You want to invite us to experience joy in our lives. You are the God of joy. It says in Zephaniah 3 that you rejoice over us with singing, that you quiet us by your love. And if that is who you are, then we are called to enter into that presence and to experience more of your, our joy, more of your joy in our lives as well. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just fill our hearts up with joy this morning as we spend time with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can take your seats. And as you do, today's sermon is entitled Fighting for Joy. And I want us to consider Habakkuk's example in these three verses uh, and really to see how I can kind of picture like God inviting Habakkuk to fight for joy with four practices. Okay, so um, these are invitations from the Lord. I call them invitations, not obligations, because they put us in a position to experience joy in our lives as we pursue these things. So God invites us to relate to him, to reflect on him, to depend on him, and to wait for him. So these four invitations, relate, reflect, depend, and Wait. All right, invitation number one, relate. And kind of next to that, you can kind of picture just God's presence. All right, so right off the bat, Habakkuk, he's listening to some bad stuff, right? He says there's, there's no blossoms, uh, there's no fruit, there's no produce of the olive, there's no food, there's no flock, there's no herd. In other words, there is no life. How many of you guys have experienced that? 
No life at all. And if you are like me, my tendency in that place is not to move towards the Lord. My tendency in that place is to move away from the Lord, to say, just to assume, well, God, you're not for me. Uh, God, you don't love me. God, you don't hear me. God, you don't, you don't provide for me. God, you're powerless to move and to answer my prayers, right? In my flesh, that is my response. I move away from the Lord, or I kind of put on this sort of happy face, and I leave all the junk behind, and I kind of pretend like, okay, well, God, I know you want to be happy, so I'm just going to be happy in your presence, but I leave all that yuck behind, that is not what Habakkuk does. Instead, God invites him to relate to him, particularly through the practice of lament. Lament just means to cry out to the Lord, to bring all your baggage to the Lord, to say, God, I need you. I need your help. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm having a hard time. See, what many of us would see as rejection from the Lord, Habakkuk saw as an invitation from the Lord. Rather than run away, he runs towards the Lord. He comes to the Lord with all of his yuck, with all of his stuff, and he just says, God, here I am, and here's all my yuck. Please help me. Do you know that God is big enough to handle all of your concerns and your cares and your, your struggles? He's big enough to handle your complaints before him. God invites you to relate to him, to abide with him, to sit in his presence even when the circumstances tell you not to. See, God says, while everything else is changing and falling apart, I never change. And I'm here to put you back together again. And the beautiful thing is, as we do, as we come before the Lord, God begins to change our hearts. It's amazing. If you were to go back to chapters 1, 2, and then you come to the end of chapter 3, you're like, there has been a heart change in Habakkuk. He has been struggling, he's been complaining, he's been crying out to the Lord, he's been lamenting before the Lord, and then he comes to this place at the end of the book, and he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields there no fruit, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. When you are pressed down on every side, God invites you to relate to him. And over time, God begins to give you eyes to see that he really is enough for you. Think about Jesus and what did he tell us? He said, don't come when you got everything figured out. He says, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will, I'm gentle and lowly of heart towards you. So when we go through hard times, it's actually an invitation to bring all of our cares and our concerns to the Lord. And here's a beautiful thing. Habakkuk, in essence, he basically says, God, I want these other things, but even if I don't have them, you're enough for me. That word Lord right there, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, if you notice, it's in all caps. It's the word Yahweh. It's the word that God spoke to Moses when he said, I am who I am. And it was the covenant-keeping sort of word for God that he, he presented to Israel and said, I'm going to never leave you. I'm going to never forsake you. I'm always going to walk with you, and I want you to have a relationship with me. You see, joy is relational, not circumstantial. But so oftentimes we get joy and happiness confused. Now, happy is, happiness is a great thing, right? When something good happens, we get happy. It's awesome when we experience that. But as we know, 
Happy things don't always happen. And so we're like the bell curve. We're constantly up and down and up and down. Happiness is all over the place because it's a temporary feeling based on temporary circumstances. But joy, it's so much deeper. It's so much fuller. It's so much richer. Joy is rooted in God no matter the circumstances, whereas happiness is a temporary emotion based on present circumstances. This is what William Vanderhoven said. He said, life need not be easy to be joyful. Joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. See, when God begins to strip away all those other things, then you come face to face with him and you say, God, you're enough for me. Have you ever found, have you, have you, have you been surprised about the fact that the people who seem to have the least things and the most trouble or suffering also end up becoming the most joyful people you've ever met? Isn't that crazy? Uh, my daughter, Abigail, she has been providing care for a woman named Miss Jimmy Sue. Real sweet woman. Her husband passed away a long time ago, and she has muscular dystrophy. She was in her late 80s. And uh, Abigail comes over to do just simple tasks because Miss Jimmy Sue can't do it. She's constantly bent over, and she walks with a walker like this. Uh, she can't open jars, and so Abigail has to open up all the jars. She can't portion her foods. So Abigail has to put all the portions just right in the refrigerator at just the right height so that Miss Jimmy Sue can find it. Uh, Abigail has to do all of the tasks around the house because Miss Jimmy Sue can't do anything. And yet, Abigail comes home and she's like, Miss Jimmy Sue is the most joyful person that I've ever met. How is that possible? Romans 5 says, rejoice in your suffering. Because suffering produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. There's this amazing work of God where as God strips things away in the midst of our suffering, somehow God supernaturally overwhelms us with his love to say, I'm enough for you. And then joy begins to fill up. If you're in that place of suffering and hardship this morning, I encourage you, don't move away from the Lord. Instead, even use the Psalms as a guide. There's so many Psalms of lament Use those psalms as a guide to cry out to the Lord and say, God, but God, uh, I think of Psalm 13. I'm just going to turn there just because I'm thinking about it. So Psalm 13, uh, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord. He's lamenting. He's saying, how long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? But then in verse 5, there's this exchange. But I have trusted in your steadfast love love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I don't know how it works. It is a supernatural work that God does in our hearts to fill us up with joy in hardship and difficulty. And so my encouragement to you this morning is if you're in that place, relate to God, cry out to him, sit in his presence, fight for joy despite your circumstances. So that's number one, relate. Invitation number two, reflect. You can kind of put next to that God's provision. All right, so in addition to Habakkuk relating to the Lord, he also begins to reflect on all that God has done for him. And he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So in other words, our tendency, my tendency, my natural response is to grumble and complain, right, when things aren't going my way. 
Uh, But Habakkuk actually fights for joy by remembering the Lord and reflecting back on what God has done for him, how God has saved him out of darkness and brought him into marvelous light, how God has forgiven all of his sin and, and, and given him new life, how God has brought him into a relationship with him that he didn't even think possible, that he couldn't even attain on his own, and yet he's invited in. And yet, if you and I are honest, man, my my tendency is to forget what God has done. In fact, we see that over and over again in the scriptures, right? People forget what God has done. And over and over again, God says, remember, reflect, see my grace, see my goodness. Uh, Psalm 103, by the way, you can probably pick up on this. I've been reading through the Psalms the last three months. So Psalm 103, I read this on, on Friday. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not all his benefits. And then it's almost like the psalmist just starts writing things down. I'm right, okay, you're not, you forgive all of my sins. You, you remove my iniquities as far as the east is from the west. Your steadfast love is better than life and it's never going to run out for me. And as he begins to rehearse the goodness and the grace of God, he begins to be filled up with joy. Camel Morgan, he says this. He says, up there, there we go. The man of faith is never blind to the desolation. He sees clearly all the terrible facts, but he sees more. He sees God. Therefore, his last word is never desolation. It is rather salvation. God invites us to take our gaze off of our circumstances and to lift our gaze to see God and what he's done for us. Be filled up with gratitude in our hearts. So I talked about happiness earlier. Happy just comes from the same Latin word that means happenstance or happy-go-lucky or happening. Joy uh, in the New Testament, we're in the Old Testament here, but joy in the New Testament is the Greek word kara. It comes from the root word kar, meaning to move towards, to extend favor. And it's where we get the word charis, meaning grace. It's also where we get the word gratitude. And so what God is doing in our hearts is as we begin to see his grace, then what bubbles up is gratitude, and then what bubbles up out of that is joy. So forgetfulness is the chief thief of joy. Gratitude is the chief means to get joy. This is what Karl Barth said. He said, grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice of an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder and lightning. And as gratitude follows grace, so joy follows gratitude. Now, you might be saying, but Scott, I, I, I am struggling. You don't know the pain and the hardship that I've been through. And I am sorry for that. But there's something greater, something fuller, something more wonderful, and it's the fact that we are rescued, that we are forgiven, that our inheritance will never fade away, that the momentary light afflictions is producing an eternal weight of glory. And so God invites us to remember, to reflect on his grace and to see that his grace is greater than all of our sin, to see that his grace is just fall towards us as his people, to see that we will never be rejected by him. We are always accepted in his sight. 
Gratitude, though, it doesn't come naturally, right? I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were going through 1 Timothy, and we are talking about the spirit of discontentment in our age. The world is just constantly discontent, constantly running here, there, and everywhere, looking for little tiny doses of dopamine, right? Little tiny feelings of, of happiness. But it doesn't satisfy. But that's a natural response. The spiritual response is to say, God, I want to go deeper. I want to experience joy in my life. I want to see joy bubble up in my life as I meditate on your goodness and your grace. I want to write down in my journal things that are good, things that you have done for me, and that gives me an expectation, a longing, and a hope for more grace to come. I love what Pastor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says and his struggle for uh, joy in his life. In fact, he was a man who often dealt with physical and spiritual depression, uh, but he has become one of my favorite preachers. He's preached like, I don't know, 800 sermons in the book of Romans. It's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Uh, but this is what he says. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He's going to get a little crazy here. Just, just go on with me, all right? So take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. And they bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, what is the believer to do? Instead of allowing yourself to talk to you, start talking to yourself. And then he goes on and he refers to Psalm 42. He says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? Hope in God. Then he goes on, he says, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil, defy the whole world, and say, I shall yet praise the Lord. Uh, this word that says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, it also can be translated exult. Or, I kind of love this, so it actually means to turn a circle and to give praise to God. So if you're struggling, just turn a circle, give praise to God, right? That is the invitation that God has for us. Do a little dance, do a little jiggy. Um, be excited about God's grace. Posture yourselves to see more and more of His grace to hold up your hands and say, God, here I am. I want to see you. I don't want to see my circumstances, and I don't want to see you through the lens of my circumstances. I want to see my circumstances through the lens of you. I want to trust that you are good, that you are kind, that you're gracious, that you're, you're just full of love for me. If you are struggling this morning with joy in your life. Remember that you are secure in Christ, that you are washed thoroughly, that you are forgiven completely, that you are saved eternally. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, he says this, he says, believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes from not what they have, but from what they are, not from where they are, but from whose they are, not from what they enjoy, but from that which was suffered for them by their Lord. In other words, Jesus gave everything for you so that you could have everything in him. So invitation number one, relate 
Seek God's presence. Relation number two, reflect. Reflect on God's provision. Number three is depend. Kind of put next to that, God's power. Uh, Verse 19 says, God the Lord is my strength. In this fight for joy, do you guys ever get tired? Yeah. Not just with this fruit. All nine stinking fruit. It's hard, right? Oh my goodness. Oh, it's so hard pursuing Christ and swimming against the cultural stream that's just flowing against us all the time. And I'm tempted to either just kind of hop out of the stream and go seek a temporary pleasure, or I'm, I'm just tempted to kind of like, just, I'm just going to float down the stream and just quit. Or maybe I'm just going to kind of hold on a rock but not really continue to swim and move forward, just sort of like kind of numb out and not think about anything. God says, no, I am inviting you to fight for joy, but to not do it in your own strength, to do it in the strength that I supply. You see, God invites us to depend upon him rather than ourselves. There's a great book uh, by Andrew Murray called Abide in Christ. Uh, It's based on John chapter 15, talking about the the vine and the branches and... um, in this beautiful, wonderful book, uh, he talks about how we tend to do things in our own strength. And this quote I'm about to read to you, it, it's, I both love it and hate it at the same time. Um, because my, my flesh is so often presented before me when I'm trying to do things in my own strength. This is what he says. He says, the Christian often tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it, to feel it deeply. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it. God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it. The Christian mourns over his weakness. Christ teaches his servant to say, I take pleasure in infirmities. Most gladly will I glory in my infirmities. The Christian thinks his weaknesses are his greatest hindrance in the life and service of God. God tells us that it is the secret of strength and success. It is our weakness heartily accepted and continually realized that gives our claim and access to the strength of him who has said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Wait, last part again. It is our weakness heartily accepted, <laughs> that's hard, and continually realized that gives our claim and access to the strength of our God. You see what? Andrew Murray's saying here, he's saying, you have to to get to the end of yourself before you find the Lord. Scott, stop doing things in your own strength. Stop trying to be better on your own. Stop trying to staple up fruit onto a tree rather than abide with me and sink your roots deep into my grace and my presence, and then you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Andrew Murray says there's really two ways of seeking to accomplish holiness or the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, He says one is the carnal way, one in which we put forth our utmost resolutions and efforts, and then we ask God to sort of bless us in doing so. And he says the other way, though, is the spiritual way, the one in which as those who have truly died to self and say, I can do nothing, But our one care then is to receive Christ day by day in every step. Let him live and work in us. That is what it means to abide in Christ. That's what it means to depend on the Spirit. That's what it means to walk with our 
God. And as we spend time in his word, we begin to behold more of his character. We begin to be changed from the inside out. And before we know it, the spirit of God is just breathing life and love and joy in our hearts and giving us the strength to continue to pursue hard after Christ. You know, several of you who um, actually participate in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, there's a mustard seed group actually that meets right here in our shopping center uh, that several of you go to. And while AA is not a Christ-centered um, ministry, at the same time, I love the first three steps on this road to sobriety. And I want to read them to you if you're not familiar with them. So step number one, we admit we are powerless over alcohol. You can fill in the blank for anything, right? I, I admit that I'm powerless to find joy on my own. I admit that I, I'm powerless to overcome uh, my lust. I admit that I'm powerless to stop lashing out at other people. Fill in the blank, whatever it is, we admit we are powerless. Number two, we believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Do you find yourself just going crazy every time you keep following the flesh rather than the spirit? Ah. But God invites us to seek his power to restore us. And then step number three, we have decided to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. He wants to care for you so much more than you can care for yourself. That is the invitation. Depend on God's power. Last but not least, invitation number four, wait. You can kind of put next to that, God's promises. Uh, Habakkuk, he inserts this last little phrase here at the very end. It's almost like kind of a mic drop at the end. Uh, he says, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I'm like, what is going on here? In fact, there commentators have lots of different thoughts about what might be happening in Habakkuk's heart. Some people think that he is just primarily envisioning a physical deliverance. Uh, so they, his desire is that people would be protected from the invading Babylonians, that they would be able to soar over their enemies. They would be able to be protected and secure on Mount Zion, that high place. And so Habakkuk longs to experience that freedom and that rescue and that joy that comes when God answers his prayers. So physical deliverance is certainly what some people think is going on here. A second thing, though, is a spiritual experience, that there is this joy in the Lord that sort of captivates Habakkuk's heart and, and fills him up in such a way that he is lifted high and, and seated at the right hand of God. I mean, he's, he's just like experiencing Christ. And, he's, and it said, what does it say in Colossians 3? It says that we are to think upon things above. We're to, we're to envision Christ and where he is. And we're invited into that experience of Christ that goes beyond the, the here and now, that goes beyond the physical to the spiritual. Maybe that's what Habakkuk's longing for. But there's still a third group of people that think that really what's about, what is in Habakkuk's heart is something that's not present tense, but looking future tense. See, life is a mere shadow of things to come. And while we might experience a little bit of joy now, there is something that, for, that just is, is far outweighs that. Uh, as, as the hymn writer says, he says, today is a foretaste of glory divine. And so people think that Habakkuk is, is longing for something much greater that God is inviting him into, a joy that's eternal, a joy, as Psalm 16 that says, where, there, where there's pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. There's joy that awaits us that's so much deeper and fuller and richer and just more than we could even imagine. 
As C.S. Lewis says, he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So we get these little taste buds, right? And God whets our appetites with little tastes of joy. Oh, we're waiting for more. What is it, Pastor Scott? I think it's all three. All right, so uh, I think Habakkuk is here both having a present tense and a future tense sort of longing for more joy. Yes, we are to pray, Holy Spirit, come upon me. Give me more joy right here, right now. And yet I'm looking forward to that time to come when all suffering will be gone, when all struggle will be over, when I will no longer have anything blurring my vision to see you face to face and to experience joy eternally and without measure. And to enjoy the people of God who are full of joy and love forever and ever and ever. And to see God right there, Zephaniah chapter 3, rejoicing over me with singing and quieting me by his love. Let me tell you what uh, the experience of this was like for a man by the name of William Cooper. Uh, for those of you who don't know this man, he, was, he lived in the 1700s. He battled depression all of his life. In fact, early on, his, his, wife, his, excuse me, his mom passed away at the age of six, and he was sent off to a boarding school, and that just sort of led to all sorts of troubles and hardships in his life. Uh, he ended up uh, almost committing suicide multiple times, uh, just really struggled to find any sort of meaning or value in life. And in his early 30s, he was sent away to an asylum to try to get some help. And uh, because God loved William so much, uh, he placed the Bible next to William. And William, for the first time ever, picked up this Bible and started reading. And he read this story about how Christ healed Lazarus. But it wasn't just the Christ's healing power that, that mesmerized him, but it was Christ's character towards him. In fact, he said, I saw so much benevolence, so much mercy, so much goodness and sympathy toward miserable men like me in my Savior. And God stirred up William's heart to see Christ and to entrust his life to him. But that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, this man by the name of uh, Nathaniel Cotton started to help um, help William begin to search through the scriptures to find out more about this guy, uh, this Jesus that he didn't know. Uh, but sometimes, even though the joy oftentimes would be filled up in his heart, he would have these bouts of depression again. In fact, they seem to come in cycles. Some of you may experience things like that. And thankfully, though, God did not leave him on his own. But he brought another man in, a man by the name of John Newton, who himself knew much about hardship and difficulty and misery and sin and suffering as he was a slave trader. But as we know, John Newton was miraculously rescued by God's grace, and he wrote Amazing Grace. And so John began to help William start to write down who God is and what he's done. And he wrote a particular hymn called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. And then he goes on, he says, And there am I, though vilely 
uh, the, the vile, as, a, as all I could possibly be, yet you washed all my sins away. He began to rehearse the gospel, the goodness of God, and yet these waves of depression would come again and again and again. But William did not stop. He fought for joy, and he, he longed for joy to be in his life here, but he also longed for joy to come. He longed for that eternal place where God would welcome him into his presence and where there would be no more struggle anymore. And towards the end of his life, he wrote this other hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want to read it to you. This reveals to you his heart, Habakkuk's heart, and I pray our hearts as well as we are, we are struggling through this life. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Habakkuk struggled to figure out, like, what is life all about? William, in the same way, is like, I'm struggling sometimes. Like, God, what are you up to? And yet, they held on to the fact that one day everything would be made plain in God's sight. And that all of their suffering, all of their sorrow, all of their struggle would be wiped away. And they would enjoy God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to wait. Wait on the Lord to fulfill all of his good promises. I pray right here, right now, that God would give you more joy, but I pray also that he would fill you up with joy that is to come. Or the promise is fulfilled or promise is going to be fulfilled, we can fight for joy. I think about this, uh, just actually reading this again this morning, Habakkuk chapter 2. Listen to the invitation from the Lord. Verse 2, it says, The Lord answered to me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Same kind of idea, right? Run! For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Amen? So when I think about uh, joy. We are called to relate to God. We are called to reflect on God. We're called to give thanks to the Lord and then to experience and, and depend upon him. And then last but not least, we are called to wait. And to think about the one who fulfilled that calling perfectly. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was full of joy. Because every burden that he faced, he saw as an opportunity to relate to his father, to bring his burdens to the father. He was a man who was full of joy because he reflected on his relationship with his God. And he, and he said, oh, father, you just love me. You delight in me. 
And just filled up his heart with joy and gratitude because of his love for the son. And then when Jesus was tempted to give up, to, to, to kind of say, to say yes to sin, he said, no, I'm going to say no to sin and yes to righteousness because I'm going to depend upon the Spirit's power. I'm going to depend upon God's word to help me. And as we know, Jesus went all the way to the cross. He said, I am willing to go to the cross. Why? Because of the joy set before me, the joy that was to come. He said, I'm going to experience forsakenness by my Father so that all of my people would never be forsaken. And I wonder what that joy must have been like that was set before him. I think there might have been a joy of an embrace from his Father. I mean, think about this. Your Father has just poured out his wrath on you. And then he welcomes you into his presence and says, I'm so pleased with you, son. Not only that, though, there wasn't just joy there. There was joy for welcoming us into his presence as well. The same blessings that come to Christ come to us through our faith in Christ because of his work on the cross. And so from the cross to the crown, yes, we have a little bit of struggles in this life, but it's nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us when Jesus returns. That's our invitation this morning. Let's pray.